0: And the registration. Uh, last week, I can't believe it, uh, all my preparation, my favorite week of the 10 series, and uh, I'm gonna confess this, I didn't even get here for the first service. I sat in somebody's driveway for an hour after sliding down two hills. Uh, got here, the second service was okay, then the third service was normal. So uh, we kept all the resources out there. There's a CD set, you can download it on the web. Uh, we really want you to grow and learn this year. And um, So all that stuff is available, and really the the book that I want to highlight is Never Go Back by Henry Cloud, Uh, the 10 Things uh, He Recommends You Never Do, and uh, that's one of those books you keep around for a long time and just reread the chapter. So let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 3.
1: Good morning. This morning's scriptures come from Luke chapter 3, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea. Herod was tetrarch of Galilee. His brother, Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonius. Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. God's word came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the vicinity of the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book in the words of the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be filled, and every mountain and hill will be made low. The crooked will become straight, the rough ways smooth, and everyone will see the salvation of God. He then said to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him, of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance." And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Even now the axe is ready to strike the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What then shall we do? The crowds were asking him. He replied to them, the one who has two shirts must share with someone who has none. The one who has food must do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He told them, don't collect any more than you have been authorized. Some soldiers also questioned him, what should we do? He said to them, don't take money from anyone by force or false accusation. Be satisfied with your wages. This is God's word.
0: If you really want to see your Bible understanding go up this year, if you really want to be enriched, one of the things you can add to your tool bag is to start to query the text. I'm going to explain that in a minute. Now, you don't have to do this all the time. Obviously, we read the Bible for enjoyment, we read the Bible for information. Sometimes we meditate on Scripture and we're just getting alone with God. That's all wonderful. But you can really go to another level by querying the text. Here's what that means every once in a while, you sit down and you say, Lord, You know, why out of all that was going on during this era or this particular time, did you select this particular record for people for all generations to read? You know, why did the Holy Spirit get these set of verses? Why do we need to read them over and over again in every generation? Now, Paul does this in his letter to the Corinthians. I believe Paul was meditating on the Exodus story in the Old Testament, where God had taken almost 3 million people out of Egypt into the Promised Land, and there was wilderness wanderings, and they complained, and they lusted after other things. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, his conclusion in verse 6, he said, all these things have become our examples. In other words, all this was written down for us. So when you're in the Old Testament, you read about Samson or Solomon and some of the failings of God's people. You know, God's not into, like, throwing people under the bus. Like, wow, look at the sin of this guy or this girl. No, all those things are our examples, Paul said. Why? That we shouldn't lust after evil things as they did. In other words, they were the first congregation in the wilderness. That Greek word, ekklesia, they were a gathering of people. They were literally a church in the wilderness. And what Paul understood, I think we need to realize, is that people are always the same. Whenever you put a group of people together, whether it's in... The wilderness, or it's in Corinth, or Philippi, or Delaware County, you know, we're all prone to the same things. We all have the same fallen condition, and so scripture is written to kind of correct some of our fallenness. Every scripture, I believe, has a fallen condition focus, and then it's meant to realign us and get us on the path. Uh, that God wants us to be on. Jonathan Edwards, when he was asked about his personal Bible study, he said asking questions of the text is the key to all understanding. So I uh, just want to help you out this year. Sometimes it's not all about quantity. Sometimes it's about quality. So maybe you're trying to read the Bible this year. That's a wonderful goal. And some of you have a one-year Bible. I said last week, I wish they came out with a two-year Bible because slowing down can help. Scripture saturation, reading a chapter every day for 30 days is a wonderful idea. Let it steep into your spirit. Uh, I love, whenever we're teaching through a book of the Bible, people know where I'm going to be next week. I'll be in chapter 4, then chapter 5. And they'll run down after a service and say, Pastor Bob, uh, this is what God showed me about the text while you were preaching or this week while I was studying it. And I'm always amazed because I feel like I've read everything you can read. I've heard everything you can hear. And then they'll tell me something I've never seen before. And what's really cool is if they tell me in the first service, I can use it in the second, third, and take credit for it. Um, but that's what God does, He opens the text to us. So when I look at this particular chapter, I have some questions. You know, one of my questions is, one of the most profound things in all scripture is the day Jesus gets baptized. He walks into the Jordan, and John's going to baptize him. The heaven opens, and God said, this is my son whom I love. It's the first time the word love's used in the gospel. Um, It's the Father in heaven, Jesus the Son is in the water, the Holy Spirit's falling, so we see the Trinity. So we see this profound scene, but it's given two verses here in Luke chapter 3, and yet we have this large amount of verses about John in the wilderness. Why? Another question I have is, uh, again, two verses on Jesus' baptism. But the first two verses are, are about leaders during that time, like Caesar and Herod and these gentlemen. And then we have this long genealogy of Jesus at the end, which most of us think are boring and we don't understand why it's there. And then my last question is, we haven't seen John since he was eight days old. Remember, it was the day he was about to be named, and they said he's going to be called John, and everybody said, well, nobody has ever been named John, and they name him John. It's been 30 years since that day. Has nothing happened in John's life worth recording? So these are my questions, and as I query the text and labored over it, this is what God showed me. Verse 2. That while all this was going on in the world, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And so what I want to share with you this morning is three things. Why did the word of the Lord come to John? How did it come to John? And then when finally, when it came, how did he act on it? Why did God's word come to John? How did it come? And then what did John do once he heard the word of God? So let's start with the first question. You know, why did God's word come to John? Well, you can see in the first two verses those first two verses tell us about all we need to know about the time in which John lived and what Jesus was going to minister in. Now, Luke gives us a list of these men, starting with Tiberius Caesar, uh, through Herod's sons who were Tetrarchs, rulers of third areas, and high priest for a reason. Luke wants us to know that he was writing in the time when these events happened. Why is that important? Because a lot of times critics of the Bible, and they're going to say this to you or you're going to read it, they'll say, oh, those events were written much later after these things happened. And the reason they're going to tell you that is because they want to move you away from the idea of an eyewitness account and make you think it was fabricated. A great example is the book of Daniel. You know, Daniel's a prophet, and God gives him the ability to interpret dreams. And when Daniel interprets a dream, he sees world-dominating empires rolling out right before him Hundreds of years before it happened. Babylon, then Persia, then Greece, then Rome, and then finally in some future time that that maybe we'll see, a united Roman Empire. a, A one world system, so to speak. And Daniel was so exact in his prophecies, critics of the Bible come along and say, Oh, no, 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 that was written 500 years later. So Luke gives us these leaders, and he gives us dates. You know, the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, about 29 A.D. So we know that Luke wrote these events in the times when they happened. But then there's another reason. Each man on this list represents the abuse of power at some level. Rome had occupied Israel for about 100 years. There's been a governor in Jerusalem since about 6 A.D., Um, Tiberius was such a vile ruler, he was one of the worst Caesars, that his father, Augustus, he was his third choice. That's how evil he was. Augustus was evil, and he's like, I don't even want this guy succeeding me. Herod's sons were uh, in no position to rule, it was just, you know, royal family kind of deal. Caiaphas was a puppet of Rome, he was the high priest, Annas was the real high priest, and he was corrupt. So you look at this entire backdrop of a world dominated by fear, corruption, and justice. And then John comes along. And the door's been cracked just a little, a light shining through. Uh, people may have heard the story of Jesus' birth, the star that, that, that predicted his birth, or the Magi, or the slaughter of the innocents by her. You know, somewhere, sometime, people sense something's about to happen. And John comes along and they're going to go out, hundreds of thousands of them, and they're going to be baptized at the Jordan. And so I believe the word of the Lord came to John because it couldn't come to anyone else. It couldn't come to Rome. It couldn't come to Jerusalem. It couldn't even come to the place where God said he would put his name, the temple, because it had been corrupt by this time. And if you want to understand what it looked like in Jesus' time, all you have to do is read the book of Malachi. That was the last book of the Old Testament. Where God said, this is the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, and you say, in what way have you loved us? God's people couldn't even say the ways in which God had loved them. Uh, Malachi goes on to talk about the polluted offerings, the corrupt priests, uh, the tithes that they were bringing in. Everything was just lip service unto God. And in chapter 3, verse 1, God says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb by Israel, with statues and judges. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Remember, Jesus said, You know, if you're willing to receive this, John was Elijah who was to come. John was the forerunner. He was the one who would turn Israel back to its ways. And so the word of God bypasses all these rulers, even the temple, and it comes to John. Now, there's another reason why it came to John, and this is what we have to understand, and it's this God has a plan. Does everybody get that? God has a plan. Uh, God had plan A in the garden, and guess what? God had plan B in the garden, and both plans were God. God was plan A, God was plan B. God is the only plan. And God's plan, since man fell, was to restore man through law, through commandments, through the building of the temple, through Jesus Christ. God is weaving a tapestry of redemption in human history to draw us unto himself, to draw us away from dead religion into a relationship with a holy living God who speaks and who loves us and wants to save us by grace. Now, literature, film, everybody flirts with this. Uh, You would be surprised when you read or go to the movies how many themes are dominated by this idea, are we part of a plan? Quirky little movie out called The Adjustment Bureau. Um, worth seeing. Matt Damon's in it, so it's worth seeing. Um, but the idea is that these guys work for The Adjustment Bureau. They wear suits, and they have fedoras, and it's set in our time in New York City. And these guys are kind of like angels. They have this copybook, and when they open it up, there's a digital map or plan of your life. And what they're trying to do is keep everybody on plan. So, people miss buses, they spill coffee, cell phone calls are dropped, appointments are mixed, all to nudge us along to keep us on plan. Very interesting idea. The alternate view is that there is no God and there is no plan. The famous atheist Friedrich Nietzsche said, Man is the product of causes that have no prevision of the end they were achieving. Man's origin, his hopes, loves, dreams, fears, and beliefs, are but the outcome of what he called an accidental collocation of atoms. That all the labors of the ages, all the labor and devotion, and all the noonday brightness of human genius genius, are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. Isn't that depressing? I mean, the idea is tomorrow when you get up and get your cup of coffee and you're going to go to work and try and treat people right and, you know, be generous and do the right thing, It's all a cosmic joke. There is no plan. When we look back in history, it is not his story. It's just a colossal accident. And therefore we eat, drink, and tomorrow we die. Now, we know that's not true, right? God has given us purpose, and there's, you know, everything's beautiful in God's timing, and He's given us a wonderful plan. John was part of that plan. You're part of that plan. And the word of the Lord comes to John and he realizes his part in this plan. And he realizes from the beginning God is weaving this tapestry. He realizes that the fullness of time had come and that Jesus was born under the law, born of a woman. He realizes that he is the forerunner, but please get this this morning. He's got to own the plan for himself. Do you realize how many nights at dinner his father said, hey John, Remember why your name's John? I had an angel appear to me, and I didn't believe that your mom was going to get pregnant in 90, But so I was made dumb, and then on the day of your birth, I scribbled that your name should be John, and you're going to be the messenger, and oh, Dad, I, you know, Dad if you say that one more time, it's going to drive me crazy, right? And he's raised in the temple. His dad's a priest. His mom is, has the legacy of the priesthood, and, and he's made a Nazarite from his birth. See, somewhere he's got to own it. And just like you have to own it. If you were raised in a Christian family, it's not enough. If you were raised in America, it's not enough. Somewhere you've got to own it. Somewhere you have to get with God, and it's got to become real to you. Somewhere in my journey, I had to believe that God called me into the ministry. I had to step out. I had to know from heaven I was called. Because if you're not called, you'll jump out a window. That's for sure, okay? Okay? Because if you're called, God gifts you. Where God guides, he provides. So why did God's word come to John? Because John was part of the plan. Because God longs to speak to us. Now how did it come? Look in your Bible. It says, the word of the Lord came to John in the wilderness. And I want to caution you here. Because in 2015, in America, and I don't care if you live in the city or the suburbs... We don't have a wilderness, okay? At least not here in Philadelphia. So the wilderness becomes code for us of some barren, dry place. Now, please, you do not have to sell everything you have, drive to Arizona, sit in a dry desert, and think, oh, then God will speak. No, God always is speaking. What we need to do is put ourselves in a place where we can hear. So for John, this place was in the south of Israel called Qumran. You may have heard of that before, because that's where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, Here's why John went to Qumran, and it was a very difficult choice. At the age of 20, John would have to make a decision would he join the priesthood as his dad was a priest and his dad before him. And For some reason, John looked at the priesthood, saw the corruption, and, and knew that wasn't the place for him. He looked at another sect called the Pharisees, but they were outwardly religious people, and he didn't want to be a part of that. The Sadducees were liberal, they didn't even believe in angels or the supernatural, and when your dad's seen an angel and your birth is predicted, you're not going to join that sect. But there was a group of people called the Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S, who lived in the south of Israel in Qumran, who believed in withdrawing from society, much like the Amish or the Mennonite. They were ascetics, they were the -the back-to-the-Bible people. And John went down there for 10 years and put himself in a place where he could hear from God. Uh, The first week of my 10 series when I talked about spiritual growth, my most prolific point was when it comes to spiritual growth, it's the church's job, right? It's the pastor's job, right? Is that what we taught? No, when it comes to spiritual growth, it's your job. My spiritual growth is my job. Remember my illustration of basketball that, you know, there's a bunch of guys sitting on bar stools blaming coaches and programs, etc.? Right? Spiritual growth is your job. It's my job. John realized that and he put himself in a place to hear from God. And then guess what happened? It says the word of the Lord, get this, listen, came upon him. It's the word of P in the Greek. It doesn't mean it came unto him. It literally came upon him. Jesus said, you will receive the Holy Spirit, and he will come upon you. It means he will envelope you. The press of God's word came to John. Now, if you've never seen this before, it's very important. There's two words for Greek, in the Greek, for the word, word. Okay, Classical Greek, they had a word called the lagos. The Lagos was word. It was more than that. It's very complicated. Uh, don't have time to go into it. But when, when John searched for a Greek word to tell us about the coming of Christ in John 1.1, 1, 1, that's the word he chose. In the beginning was the Lagos, and the Lagos was God and was with God, and the Lagos tabernacled among us. John was saying the very word of God that you and I read, is God. And the God that walked among us is the Word. So when you read the Bible, it's like any other book. You, you are becoming intimate with the author. This is the only book that's life-giving when you read it. So the Lagos teaches me how to live. So every day when I go out into the world, I know I have to love people as I love myself, treat them right. I have the Ten Commandments. I know how God wants me to live. I know the husband I'm supposed to be, how I should raise children. It's all here in the Lagos. But the Lagos isn't enough. There's another word. It's called rhema in the Greek. Rhema is the word from God that comes to you in your individual life. Rhema is when you're hearing the word of God or reading it, God comes under the word of God and speaks something Personal to you. I'll give you an example. Right now what we're doing Sunday morning. So I prepared all week. There's three or four things I want you to learn. I understand most of you will just learn one of these things. And so I'm hoping something sticks with all of you. But as I'm preaching and when I sit under the word of God and when I sit under teaching, there is always something that comes to me outside of what I heard in the message. And when I get in my car, it's pressing on me. God spoke to me. Uh, John Corson said that every pastor on a Sunday morning should have milk for those who are babes in Christ and are growing, a little bit of meat for the veterans, but we all need manna. We all need the rhema from God. Twice this year, in the span of four months, I had the privilege of hearing Lou Giglio speak live. Now, I had never heard Lou in my life I never read anything he wrote. I never watched his videos. I knew he led the passion movement with Chris Tomlin on college campuses, but I really never studied his ministry. So I'm at a leadership event with people my age, and then I'm on a college campus, so two vastly different audiences where I heard Lou speak. And he told one of the most profound stories about the will of God I have ever heard in my life. And he shared how he went to Baylor University to get his master's degree, married his wife there, and they started a college ministry from scratch. In 10 years, the ministry just grew by leaps and bounds. They were ministering to scores of college kids. God was moving. And right about the 10-year mark, God said, I want you to move back to Atlanta, where he grew up. Your dad's dying. I want you to spend the last few years of your life with your dad. So they prayed. They turned the ministry over. They packed the U-Haul. The day they got back to Atlanta, his dad died. They literally buried his dad. And sat in Atlanta with nowhere to live, no ministry, no jobs. Went through the dark night of the soul. Could read the Bible, could read the logos. And God spoke to Lou Giglio and said, what you did at Baylor, I'm going to do on every college campus. You're going to reach every college campus for Christ." Now, in the years to come, that would birth the passion movement, which grew so large that their annual gathering was in Atlanta at the Georgia Dome, which holds 100,000 students. And it's every Christmas, the break between Christmas and the New Year. So they're having their event at the Georgia Dome, but the day before is the Chick-fil-A College Bowl. And they asked Lou to go out for the coin toss. So he goes out for the coin toss, and he's startled because right at midfield, is the Chick-fil-A logo that his dad designed in 1968. And it hadn't changed. He thought, wow. He did the coin toss. The game's over. They strip out the football field and they build the passion stage. The next day he's on the stage getting ready to preach. The worship ends up there. Kids are praising God. There's 100,000 people there. And he realizes they put the stage right where he was going to preach over his dad's logo. And it clicked, the penny dropped, and he realized, oh my gosh, when God told me to go from Baylor to Atlanta, I had no idea why I thought I was going to spend time with my dad, but God had far greater reasons for me to go. And he literally stood on top of his dad's work and preached to 100,000 kids. You see, the will of God is not a mystery, it's not something we hunt and peck for The will of God is where we get up every day and we say, Lord, speak that your servant might hear. We read the scriptures, we query the text, we walk with God, and God speaks. Now, God has already spoken. I I don't know, in other words, I don't get up in the morning and wonder if I should steal or not. It's already written, okay? I don't wonder if I should commit adultery today. It's already written but I don't know where to go to college, I don't know who to marry, I don't know, I don't know what job to work, I don't, I don't know where to move, I don't know what house to buy. And see, that's the beauty of Rhema, there's a God directing us. So the word of the Lord came to John because God had a plan, it came to him in the wilderness when he had put himself in place to hear from God. And then the final thing is, when we do get that Rhema, what do we do with it? I was sitting in Kenya one time with Oscar Maru, a good friend of mine now. He's pastor of one of the largest churches in Africa. And Oscar said, Bob, you know what's great about the American church? You guys do tremendous analysis. I mean, you got books and Barna Group and you've got studies for everything. And he said, We're lacking that here in Africa. He said, But here's the problem. He said, The American church is all about ready aim, but you never fire. He said, in Africa, we don't ready aim. All we do is fire. We have so many problems, we just keep firing. And I thought, you know, he's right. We have the paralysis of analysis. If I read one more book, and I don't read these books, they're all handed to me, the coming economic earthquake, the coming, you know, uh, evangelical recession, and all the kids are leaving church, and everybody's leaving this, and the church is doing, well, what am I supposed to do? Am I going to do anything different? Am I going to get up and chop wood every day? Am I going to try and hear from God? Am I I going to do what God called me to do? Am I going to sit around and analyze it all? We need more people hearing from God and then acting on it. Look at verse 3. John, when he hears the word, when it comes upon him, went into all the region around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of Isaiah. Uh, That verse from Isaiah is recorded in all four Gospels. Can I give you another word of caution? Please, can we make a pact or a vow with each other this morning that never again will we say, God told me? Here's the problem with God told me. If I'm in a meeting with you and you say, God told me, if I say, hey, what, you know, why are you doing this? And you say, God told me, well, how do I reply to that? God didn't tell you, Right? Like, how do I trump God, right? So what we need to say is, I had an impression from God. I had a leading from God. I feel like God's moving me in this direction. Notice what John does. He doesn't burst on the scene and say, ha ha, God told me, here I am. No, he found a verse. Just like Peter on the day of Pentecost when he said, oh, these people are drunk. He said, no, 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 this is what Joel said. When Mary was visited by an angel and she was told she was going to have the Messiah, she didn't run around and say, I'm having the Messiah. She was told by the angel, go to to Elizabeth. Why? Because God wants to corroborate what he tells us. I can't tell you how many times somebody calls us and says, man, I have a word for you, this is what God told me. And then somebody over here says the same thing and then you feel it in your spirit. And then there's a sense that all these things are coalescing. It's very dangerous when somebody's out on their own saying God told them. Uh, years ago, God told a certain evangelist that if he didn't get so much millions of dollars sent to him in the mail, God was going to kill him. Um, people were told to hole up in rooms and starve because God told I mean, people have talked about what God has told them for millennia. But here it's corroborated by Scripture. Verse 7, Then he said to the multitudes, who came to him. This is incredible. Brut of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come. Now, John didn't go to them. They came to him, which is very interesting. Um, Think about it this way. Someone once said, there are no mass movements. There are just movements among people happening at the same time, and when we join together, it looks that way. There was a sense in Israel that God was on the move. And again, I don't know if it's, did they hear about the king of the Jews being born? I don't know what it was, but there was a sense all around. And these people are coming out in the Jordan. They're coming to see John. Scholars tell us in the hundreds of thousands. And the amazing thing is when they come, he doesn't make them feel comfortable, have a seat, you know, have a cup of coffee, you know. Right away, you brood of vipers. Now, this isn't the style of preaching I think you should adopt, okay? This was a particular time and a particular method. We've all seen the bullhorn guy, whether it's at Penn State or an Eagles game, who's telling people they're going to hell, right? And I don't think that's what most of us are called to do. And John says, look, something's new is about to start. There's a new exodus coming. The ax is getting laid to the root of the tree, and don't give me that line that Abraham's your father. God will raise up, you know, followers from, from these stones on the Abraham. That's no longer your excuse. And he's calling them to repentance, which is amazing because they're getting into the water, which is something only the Gentile converts to Judaism would do. And there's this mass understanding that God's about to do something incredible. And, and there's a glimmer of light for the first time, and John begins to baptize people. And this is how you know the Gospels at work. The people say, what shall we do in verse 10? What do we do? And I love what John says. He says, you know, if you have two shirts, give somebody one. If you have a lot of food, give it away. In other words, prove, and this this is still before the work of the Spirit that Jesus would bring. Prove that God has changed your heart. Bear fruits worthy of repentance. God's plan for John is that he would be a forerunner. They began to ask, "Are you the Christ?" And John said to them, "No, I'm not worthy to you know—to I'm not worthy to uh, be that person. I'm—you know—I'm not even worthy to baptize him. He's coming with spirit and fire, and the winning of hand, you know, in his threshing floor, and with many other exhortations to the people. I'm not the one. Here's my final question." When I read about John the Baptist, there's not a lot. And Jesus said, this is the greatest man that was ever born of a woman. Greater than all the prophets. I think, wow, what made John so great? I mean, it couldn't be that he didn't doubt, because later he's going to send his disciples to Jesus and say, are you the one, or should we look for another? I think what made John great was his calling. Again, there's only one person that was ever called to birth the Messiah. There's only one person ever called to be the forerunner. Uh, You're not going to go home today and God's going to tell you you're the forerunner of Jesus. It's it's taken, it's over, okay? So that was a great calling. But I think what made John great is that he walked 100% in this calling, relying on the Lord and hearing his voice. And really, that's all God requires of us. We don't know if we're here for five years, ten years. You could die tomorrow. You could live to 100 years old. We're not guaranteed anything. The only thing God requires is that we hear his voice and act upon it and be a part of the plan he created for you and for me, not someone else's plan. He wants us to walk out our giftings. He wants us to be a part of a fellowship. He wants us to find our place in this world. He wants us to be generous. There's so many things God has called us to, but this rhema is so important. And I can't give it to you, your wife can't give it to you, your friend can't give it to you, the person next to you can't give it to you. This is something that comes down from heaven. And we hear his voice and we act on it. And the beautiful thing is we have this history when we look in a rear view mirror. Oh, I remember when God said this and we acted on it. And wasn't this amazing? And, 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 Again, I still think we're paralyzed. And some people say, oh, I got burned by that before. I'll never do it again. Or I was burned by this church. And, and we have this paralysis of analysis. And I think, I think what made John great is he said, no, in spite of a corrupt system, in spite of a world that is brutal and dark, he gave his life to one thing that God had called to him. And he walked it out unto his fullest. Now, I don't say this much. And I don't say because it's too easy to say and so many people say but I really believe it. I was born at Jefferson Hospital in downtown Philadelphia. I have been here my whole life. And as a Christian, I've watched things happen in California and Florida and Texas and all these wonderful things. And I still believe to the core of my being, before it's all said and done, God is going to do something on the East Coast. It's going to be prolific and profound and amazing. And I'm holding out for it. You know, when I became a Christian, you couldn't find a church that taught the Bible verse by verse. You couldn't find anyone who taught about Bible prophecy. It's, the gifts were all over the place. Um, what we have today did not exist God started breaking up fallow ground, not only here, but in New York and Boston and in the Carolinas and in the middle Atlantic states. Something's happening in our cities. You know, I know men who have brought teams to Philadelphia or starting wonderful churches. And again, I think we're trying to make it happen sometimes. Like, oh, you know what pastors should be doing? They should all be getting together because if we get together, then God will move. No, God's already moving. He's already moving. And what we do, we should get together and say, now, Now, when it really comes, what should we do? Philadelphia is the city of first. So many things started here and spread through the rest of the country. And I think our day's coming. I really do. And I think we're going to see it, and we're going to be part of it. God has spoken that in my spirit. That's what I'm holding out for. Anybody could do this. Anybody could run a church. But to hold out for a move of God in our day is what I'm longing for. And I think you are too. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. And I thought this being the last Sunday of the year, a brand new year, we'd celebrate communion together. So the ushers are going to serve us.